0: attend uh, one morning of uh, the youth retreat in Washington, Iowa, and uh, there were between 80 and 100 kids who drove from all over the place, including most of Tom Pinson's high school class and part of my junior high class, and uh, Brian Schneider was doing a fantastic job of uh, admonishing and encouraging our, our kids out there, so... That was encouraging to see, but that's where some of them are, and the the one van load will be returning at 2 o'clock tomorrow morning, and they, they left at 3.30 Friday morning to get there, so um, that's that's the commitment they have to being to their retreat, so it's that's very encouraging. So um, we do have a few things that are happening this week. We have First Friday at Greg and Catherine's house, if they've recovered from their Drive till 2 o'clock in the morning. Greg forgets that he's almost my age just because he has a young wife and a bunch of younger kids than me. Um, I, you know, I sort of wonder if maybe we got those ages wrong because he acts like he's uh, acting too young. We have a, an installation service. In fact, um, do you have an edict to read?
1: You know, I do not. <laughs> Greg, Greg is not here,
0: is he? Yeah, we'll work on getting an edict. By the yeah. end of the service, yeah,
1: keep, keep talking.
0: yes, 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 oh, I can do that, John. Don't encourage don't me I
1: don't, have help
0: don't tell me to keep talking we'll 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 figure it out <laughs> I'll just make it up um anyway we will we will have an edict for you, but the reminder is, and the essence of the edict Patty's working on. Oh, yeah, of course, Patty has everything. Um, is that we do have a, a, a congregational meeting. It's actually a session meeting. And within the session meeting, we will have worship and we will have the installation of our new um, elect and examined and sustained uh, deacons and one elder. So we're looking forward to that event next Lord's Day evening. And um, it will take place essentially during the same time frame that worship would take place. And we won't have a uh, prayer time afterward, but we will have uh, something of a light meal uh, together. It's partly in celebration. This is a big deal for us, and it's an important uh, event for us. But it also accommodates we, as as many as possible. We have... Uh, other people and especially elders who will be here to help us with that installation. And they will come and and help us lay our hands and uh, ordain these men or install Tom, as the case may be. So um, I've belabored that long enough so that we can have the edict, I think. Um, There's a couple other things uh, that you'll want to note that are also coming up, but they're um, outside of this coming week. So would you like to read yeah, that yeah, yeah. And then yeah. would you introduce uh, Andrew Fortenberry, yes. yeah, our no, today's pastor? Yes. Thank you.
1: Okay, here's our here's our edict and uh, thank you, Patty Collingwood, for being so efficient. Um, elder elect Tom Penson and deacons elder deacons elect Mark Penson, Alex Glassford and Lincoln Hoover having been chosen to the respective offices by this congregation and having been examined by the session and judged qualified to take these offices notices hereby given this 16th that uh, the 16th day of april in the year 2023 has been fixed as the date for their ordination and installation with certification that the session will proceed in the same manner unless some valid objections be offered to the session Note that Tom Pinson is already ordained as an elder and is only to be installed. <clears throat> the ordination and installation will be held at 5 p.m. at Colorado Springs Christian School, 4845 Mallow Road, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80907. Given this um, this uh, date in um, April of uh, April 9th, um, 2023, by order of the session. We do. Okay, one more edict. All right. All right. This one's, this one's after that one. Um, Notice is hereby given that on the 20th day of April in the year 2023, a congregational meeting will be held to discuss and make decisions regarding the status and work to be done on our new building located at 2315 North Circle Drive, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80909. The meeting will be held at 630 at Colorado Springs Christian School, 4845 Mallow Road, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80907, by order of the session this ninth day of April in the year 2023. That was a much simpler edict, by the way. Which, well, Anyway, thank you. Um, just a, cu- a couple of real quick words. Part of the reason we do these very stuffy-sounding edicts is because we do want things to be out in the open. We don't want meetings set up in secret. And this is uh, just one of the things that we do that uh, is kind of an uh, interesting holdover, uh, I think, from a, a time gone by. But the idea is that uh, these sorts of things are for everybody to be aware of, to know about, to prepare, to prepare for, so that um, uh, nobody feels like they've been left out. Uh, so you definitely have not been left out this morning. Uh, the, uh, now, I would like to um, introduce our um, uh, preacher this morning, uh, Andrew Fordenberry, uh, lives in Amarillo, Texas, which I uh, think you saw from the blurb. Uh, he and I just got caught up a little bit for some time I've had a chance to meet Andrew. But I do want to say we are very grateful that Andrew is out here with us, with his family, and um, they will be joining us for the whole day. And um, I just wanted to thank Andrew for coming up here and uh, opening the word for us. Uh, We appreciate that and all the work you've put into the study and so forth. We uh, just really are anxious to hear from you. So uh, with that, I'll turn over our worship service to Andrew. It's
2: a pleasure to be here with you this morning on this Lord's Day. Let's stand as God calls us to worship from his word from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. We'll have our psalm of praise, Psalm 98, letter B, 98, letter B.
3: To the Lord, oh, sing a new song for the wonders he has done. His right hand and our most holy have for him the victory won, and the Lord revealed his rescue. His salvation he made known. In the sight of every nation, he his righteousness has shown. He revealed his love for Israel and to them has faithful been. When our God sent his salvation, it around the earth was seen Sing unto the Lord with gladness All the earth sing joyful praise To the Lord with
2: Standing as we pray to the Lord, and we'll end with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you, for you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You show compassion to us, your children. You know our frame. You remember that we are but dust. And as dust, Lord, we confess to you that. We come as sinners in need of grace. We come to you to worship, not in our own name or in our own strength, but in the name of Jesus, by the strength of your Holy Spirit. We rejoice to know that you forgive all our sins because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that in him we have a sufficient Savior for sinners. Lord, we give you thanks because you give us each day our daily bread. You provide for all our needs. You give us those good gifts that we as your children need. And especially the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask for him now. We ask for his presence. Pour out your spirit, Lord, upon us in this glad hour. That we might worship in spirit and in truth. All to the praise of your glorious grace to us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. The one who taught us as his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. We come now to our Old Testament reading and we continue where you left off. In Ezekiel chapter 22, we've been hearing about how uh, Israel has broken the covenant. They've rebelled against God. They've not obeyed His law. And we will hear in this uh, passage here, Ezekiel 22, verses 17 to 22, of God's wrath and anger against His people for their sin. So listen carefully, knowing this is... The word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man. The house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. We hear of God's wrath and anger against covenant breakers, how he pours out his anger and wrath upon them. We know in the gospel that he has poured out that anger and wrath, which we deserve, on his own son we hear of that good news of the gospel in our New Testament reading, that beautiful passage of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your copies of scripture, turn there with me now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Let's hear of God's great grace toward covenant-breaking sinners. This is God's word. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship." Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. May God add the blessing to his word. We come now to a gathering of tithes and offerings in the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 119, letter H.
3: 119, letter H. La, la, la.
0: stand to join me as we lift up our hearts and our hands and our eyes to the Lord Jesus. Bella it's great to see you here in church. (laughs) Heavenly Father we do come before you today and we are so thankful that you have seen fit to gather this group of believers together. Lord, we praise your glorious grace, which flows from your very character. Your character is your brightly shining glory. You made us a little lower than the angels, but we are a mere image of your glory. We are in awe of your power, of your mighty strength, the mighty strength that raised Christ from the dead, overcoming sin and death. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift, and every gift from you is good and perfect because that is who and what you are. Lord Jesus, we were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. We used to live in sin. Many of us were at one time living apart from Christ without hope in the world. We acknowledge that we are unworthy of your blessings. As we have followed the passionate desires and inclinations of the sinful nature, by our very nature we are subject to your anger. But you have united us with Christ Jesus, though we were far away from you. You have brought us near through the blood of Christ. You gave us life when you raised Christ from the dead. We thank you that you raised us from the dead along with Christ. You seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You made us examples of the incredible wealth of your grace and kindness toward us. You have made us your masterpiece of grace. Lord, we request the work of your Holy Spirit. You created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things you planned for us long ago. We pray for your Spirit to enable us to do those good things. And as we turn to you, O Lord, in prayer, we lift up Troy Finnicum to you. We're thankful for his many years of, of faithful service and fellowship and friendship in our church. We pray that you will help him to stand firm in his faith and enjoy the assurance of his salvation. We pray that he would stand firm in his convictions, not being tempted to compromise in his work and life. Lord, we prayed recently for Christ Presbyterian Church in Grandview, Missouri, that you would raise up elders. Lord, we're thankful this week that you have met some of their financial crisis by granting them an early release from their lease and finding a less expensive alternative for worship. We pray that you would, blessed by your Holy Spirit, go with them as they go door to door, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and as they spread the truth in their neighborhoods. We pray that those people, many of those people, will be your elect and they will come to faith that they will see conversions, and that people would begin to attend worship and join themselves with the body of Christ in covenant. We pray that you will be with Andrew especially in his preaching ministry. Fill him with your Holy Spirit this morning as he preaches your word. And we pray that the, the children of the congregation will complete their baptisms and confess You as Jesus and Lord, cause them to turn from their vanities to the Lord. Cause also that to happen among the people and children of Spring's Reformed Church. Lord, the church in Grandview desires to plant another church in the future. Lord, you have brought them from a sizable congregation to a minuscule congregation. You have raised them up again. Uh, and increase their numbers, and now they desire to expand the kingdom in their area and plant another church. And so we pray that you would uh, hear them, hear that prayer. Lord, we also pray for Andrew Fortenberry this morning as he brings his word. Lord, we pray that you would be with he and his family as they minister together and grow together. Lord, that you will guide them as they lead Bible studies in Amarillo with a view of planting a church of your people. Lord, bless and grant them that desire of their heart Lord finally uh, we are thankful for the the youth retreat we're thankful for Brian Schneider and his amazing preparation and the delivery of, of meaningful and helpful messages to our youth Lord we thank you for the desire of our youth and the energy of many of the adults that have traveled to take them to this retreat and Lord now as they complete that retreat I pray that you would bless them Um, that you would bless the the preaching of the word to them this morning. And Lord, as they drive even into and through the night, Lord God, uh, be with them. Help them to stay awake. Help them to drive safely. And so we we continue to worship you now in the singing of Psalm, standing up, 55 c
3: Dun, 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 but as for me, i call on God, because the Lord
0: Please be seated.
2: We come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word. I invite you to turn with me to First Peter, chapter five. First Peter, chapter five. We'll focus our attention upon verses five to seven this morning. This evening, we'll be looking. Uh, further at verses 8 to 11. If someone were to ask you, uh, which is the greatest of sins, what would you say? It's been said that according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And, And what is a pride but an attitude of independence from God? A blatant heart declaration of autonomy of self-will, the badge of the atheist. Pride is indicative of a hard, unbelieving heart like that of Pharaoh, of a soul-sick or self-righteousness like that of the Pharisees. Pride says, God, I don't need you. I am who I am. Uh, Tim Chalies wrote, is there any trait more deceptive Is there any vice easier to see in others, but harder to see in ourselves? We despise its presence in them, but defend its presence in us. Just thinking historically, pride is the sin of Lamech and of Nimrod. It's the sin of Nebuchadnezzar and of Herod. It's also the sin of Israel, God's people. It's, It's the sin of the church. Are we not guilty of this? Are we not guilty of of being prideful and self-righteous at times? Do we not have haughty eyes and a sense of superiority so that we look down on others? Oh, those foolish people. Oh, those other Christians over there, how silly they are. Do we not have that spirit of independence and rebellion that often says, I can go it alone. I don't need your advice. I don't need your counsel. I don't need your laws. I don't need your fellowship. Pride is so destructive. It destroys relationships, it's marriages, creates hostility between parents and children. It, it distances friends one from another. It divides churches. But worst of all, Pride is something that God hates. It's the attitude of Antichrist. It's rebellion. It's sin. Our Creator God hates when His creatures seek to rule themselves. He hates when His creatures take away His praise. He hates when His creatures exalt themselves as little, little g gods. God opposes the proud. We'll hear that today. You think about it as Christians, saved by grace. and We just read that in Ephesians 2, didn't we? We're saved by grace. We have no reason to boast. We have no reason to be proud. The grace of the gospel is undeserved, unmerited. Everything we are, everything we have is a gift from above. What we believe about God, the world, ourselves, leaves no place for pride. It should not be one of our characteristics should not be one of the qualities by which we're known. Instead, as the church father Augustine once said, when asked to give the three most important qualities of the Christian life, you know what he said? He said we're to be known by humility. Humility. You want to guess the third one? Humility. A believer's life is to be characterized by humility in every respect. That's how the... Inspired Apostle Peter exhorts us today in our passage. And so look there with me and listen carefully with a humble heart, knowing that this is God's Word. And like I said, we'll start back in verse 1, but our main focus will be verses 5 to 7. Peter writes, So I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, these instructions in humility are given immediately after he exhorts the church elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Part of Christian humility is the willingness to submit to the elders of the church, to place yourself under their care and guidance. Now one of the membership vows of this church is do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church? And it goes on to say, in case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? Now this kind of, Submission and respect is not only expected from uh, Christians, but it's commanded. Verse 5, be subject to the elders. Contextually, Peter is preparing the church for Christian suffering and persecution. That's what this whole letter is about. He's preparing us for those occasions when we will need to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Maybe even by laying down our lives for the gospel. He's preparing us to stand firm in the grace of God. Uh, You know the proverb that states that pride comes before a fall. You will not stand in the day of trouble if you're full of prideful autonomy and self righteousness. You will not stand if you rebel against those shepherds that God has given you for your care and guidance. You will not stand if you decline those ordinary means of grace, which God has given you for growth and, and grace and holiness. We need those. And the point that Peter is making in these verses is that humility is the way forward. Humility is the way to God. Humility is a position of safety. Our life in Christ, our life as Christians, is to be characterized by humility in every way. And so we need to hear this morning that we must be humble toward one another and humble under God. I'll say that again. We must be humble toward one another and humble under God. We'll consider those two points. First, we must be humble toward one another. Just look again at verse 5 here. Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, I don't think he's leaving anyone out there, is he? All of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Even as shepherds have oversight over the flock of God and the sheep submit to those shepherds, everyone in the church, including those shepherds, must clothe themselves with humility. I know Christians exempt... No one gets to be domineering over others. Elders, you are to be examples to the flock as humble servants, demonstrating daily Christ-like humility and service. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This language he's using, this language of clothing is used by the Apostle Paul. You might Remember it when he's writing of taking off the old man and, and putting on the new. This is the language of regeneration, the language of sanctification. To clothe oneself with humility first requires that you remove the cloak of pride. You've got to burn it, you've got to put it to death. You can't be both proud and humble at the same time. You may, might know some people, maybe yourself, that, that try this. You try to be proud and humble at the same time. And it, you, what you get is a very unfashionable false humility. And oftentimes we can see straight through it, right? We know it's a knockoff. It's not the real thing. It doesn't have that savor of Christ. Before we can clothe ourselves with humility, God must strip us of Our pride. And how does he do this? How does God strip you of your pride? How does God humble you to the dust where you cry out, God, I'm a worm? Well, he does this through his pride. Uh, I'm sorry, through his law. He does this through his law. By the law, he shows us our sin. He convicts us of our disobedience, of our rebellion. Through the law, God, by his grace, humbles us to the dust. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. He he puts us in front of the mirror and shows us our sin and unrighteousness. He shows us how distorted we are. He tells us that our best works, what we think is, oh, good job, good job, pat ourselves on the back, are but filthy rags. He leads us by his spirit to cry out in repentance for mercy and for forgiveness. Do you remember when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? He said two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, singled out by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That was his prayer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, I tell you, this man, the tax tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, Jesus says, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, how do we become humble? God humbles sinners through his law. here's an exercise in pride-killing. Go to the section in our larger catechism, the section that deals with the law, the Ten Commandments, and prayerfully consider what each of God's commandments forbid and require of us. Just go through. It will disrobe you of any shred of pride that you still have clinging to you. Through the law, we're stripped of every self-righteous leaf, every claim of merit. It's by the law that we come to say, I'm all unrighteousness. I've not obeyed. I cannot obey. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And folks, here's the good news. When we get to that point, God loves to clothe humbled, naked sinners. After he's stripped us of all our filthy rags to the point that we are red-faced ashamed of our nakedness. He loves to dress us up in the splendor of Christ's righteousness and in the beauty of spirit-wrought holiness. He loves to do this. When we, we as sinners humble ourselves and confess our sins to God, we're told God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even more, he's willing to clothe us with a righteousness that's not our own. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. It's an alien righteousness that comes from another. He clothes repentant sinners in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And one of the chief characteristics of Christ's righteousness is humility. It is the heart of a servant. All sin, even the worst of sin, even pride, is forgiven by the humble Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humble one died in the place of us who are proud. And by this grace, we're given grace so that we might be clothed in the same humility. So that we too might have this mind of Christ, as Paul puts it. A mind of putting others before ourselves. A mind of looking to the interest of others. The mind of a servant. This Christ-like humility which we put on through the gospel is a humility, as Peter says here, toward one another. You don't just get to bottle up this humility. It's not just all in here. It's humility toward one another. It's a practical humility. It affects our relationships. Instead of seeing people as either stepping stones to our happiness or stumbling stones which get in the way of our happiness, we get to look at others and see them as opportunities to exercise Christ-like service and humility. Remember that in Christ we're called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. And this means that we look out for one another's interests, not just our own. We freely, we graciously do things for one another without expecting reward, without expecting recognition. We serve willingly. We serve eagerly. We don't look with haughty eyes upon one another, having an attitude of superiority. Instead, we look at one another charitably and with love. We ask ourselves, what can I do for them? Not, can, not, what can they do for me? Now this kind of Christ-like humility toward others will cost us, just as it cost our Lord Jesus. It might come with loss and pain. It requires dying, dying to self and taking up our cross and following Jesus. This is one of the hardest things for American Christians to practice and to grasp, I think. Dying to self. But if you know the gospel, then you know that such cruciform humiliation is not, real, is not the last word. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we're told, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, for the glory of God the Father. If you've read First Peter recently, you know that one of the underlying themes of this letter is that humiliation precedes exaltation. Humiliation precedes exaltation we know this if we have studied our catechism as children. You know uh, that Christ was humbled. He, we talk about his humiliation. But then we also talk about his exaltation. We talk about his death and his sufferings. But we also talk about his resurrection and his coming again to judge the world in righteousness. This is the theme you find throughout the scriptures. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you this is gospel logic this is the way of the cross there's a there's a certain order to things suffering unto glory cross leading to crown maybe you've come across that collection of uh, puritan prayers sold by banner of truth the valley of vision and the prayer by that name valley of vision it, it spells this out very clearly It says, Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. That's gospel logic. That's gospel order. Humiliation followed by exaltation. Now, pride and sin try to opt out of that first step. Try to opt out of humiliation. They trick us into taking the shortcut. Do you remember uh, Satan tempting Christ to bypass the cross by, by, bow down and worship me, Satan said. Don't go to the cross. Just worship me. I'll give you all that you want. That's the way of pragmatism. The path of least resistance. Especially the resistance of our sinful flesh. Because humility is unnatural to the sinner. Instead of bowing down in repentance and seeking the Lord's mercy in Christ, pride stands up and boasts in the fig leaves and rags with which it has adorned itself. Again, friends, that's the way of rebellion. Pride refuses to be stripped in order that it might be clothed. It refuses to repent that it might be saved. And this seals the sinner's destruction. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's quoting this from Proverbs 3. The Proverbs are full of this kind of instruction, warning that the path of pride is the path of folly, encouraging us instead to embrace wisdom through humility and repentance. Wisdom and and pride, they're, they're like water and oil. They don't mix. If you would walk the path of lady wisdom, you must humble yourself, humble yourselves. The colorful peacock, Struts proudly, it, it shows us its colors, but it's a very foolish bird. Friends, have you been stripped of your pride? Has the Lord done that in your heart? Has the Lord graciously clothed you with the humility of Christ? If he has, and you're commanded to continue this process of, of putting off pride and of, of putting on humility by the empowering of the spirit. This is a daily struggle. It's a moment-by-moment fight for us. We call this sanctification. And it's not easy. It's a process of becoming more and more like Christ, more holy in an unholy world. And the most visible arena in which this struggle, this process of sanctification takes place is in your relationships, and especially your relationships in the church. Again, look what Peter says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. He's writing to the churches. And so may it be said of us that we are humble toward one another. But secondly, we must be humble under God. Look at verses 6 and 7 here. must be humble under God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You cannot be humble toward one another except you be humble under God. The vertical relationship to God controls our horizontal relationships with one another. The humble service and sacrifice that we see in Jesus, God the Son, is a fruit of His humble obedience to God the Father. And if we're going to reflect this virtue of humility in our relationships with one another, then we must first be humble under God. As one writer says, to submit to God is the root of submission and service to one another. You can't have the fruit of Of submission and service to one another, unless you have that root of submission to God. And so, what does this submission or this humility under the mighty hand of God look like? What does it entail? Well, first, such humility acknowledges the sovereignty of God. It acknowledges the sovereignty of God. This anthropomorphic expression which Peter uses of the mighty hand of God, children, does God have a body? No, He's a spirit. But we're told God, God's mighty hand, this is, a, this is a figurative expression here. It's an anthropomorphic expression. And it's a, an illusion. It's, it's hearkening back to the Exodus event, when God brought Israel out of Egypt by a mighty hand. That was the great redemptive event of the Old Testament. And now, in Jesus, we have a second Exodus, a greater Exodus, by one greater than Moses. By a mighty hand, God brings us sinners out of the bonds of sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. And therefore, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is to submit to God's sovereign work of salvation through Christ. It's to believe and to acknowledge that salvation is of the Lord, not a result of works so that no one may pridefully boast. To be humble under God is to say, I can't save myself, but God saves me by the cross and empty tomb. It's to acknowledge God as your creator and your redeemer and to live as his creature and and as his child in humble dependence and in reverent obedience. And so first we must acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Second, notice that this humility leads to exaltation at the proper time. God, by His mighty hand, put His people Israel under the power of the Egyptians. They were slaves, 400 years. And later, under the power of the Babylonians, they were exiled. He did this to humble them. He did this to show His power and sovereignty among the nations. And it was at the proper time, not too soon, not too late, at the proper time that He exalted His people. When God's sovereignty would be most manifest, it was at that time that God delivered his people. He leads Israel out of Egypt by a mighty hand. He brings his people out of exile in Babylon, brings them back to the, uh, to the land. And in both cases, it was at the proper time, a time which was foretold, a time after much suffering and hardship. A time that manifested the glory and power and wisdom of our Almighty God most clearly. And in the same way, our times of humbling are under the sovereign control of God. Like the Christians to whom Peter wrote this letter, we might face periods of trial and persecution. A time when Christianity is especially unpopular A time when we have transgender people shooting up schools, just like this one. Peter's writing to a very similar period of time of trial and persecution. But all such humbling is meant for our good, not our destruction. For God's glory, not God's shame. And in the end, he will bring us out of it. He will exalt us at The proper time, not when we think is best, but when God knows is best. This proper time is ultimately when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. On that day, all of God's people who were oppressed and who were slandered and despised and even martyred at the hands of wicked men, they'll be finally and openly acknowledged and acquitted, vindicated, Just as Joseph was uh, brought up from prison, exalted to a position of power and authority at the proper time, so too all Christians will be exalted in the day of the Lord. This means we need to be patient under trial. We must be hopeful in adversity. We need to be farsighted people. We must endure such humiliation with poise and with hope. Hope that suffering is unto glory. Knowing that after the cross is the crown. That after death is resurrection. And now third, this humility under God entails the use of the means of grace. And in particular here, Peter's mentioning the means of prayer. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. A humble Christian is one who recognizes God's sovereignty. They recognize that humility under God's mighty hand leads to exaltation at the proper time. And thirdly, they recognize that God has ordained certain ordinary means by which we find grace to help in our time of need. In our seasons of humility, God gives us strength through His Word, His sacraments, and through prayer. Let's think about these three things just for a moment before we close. We humble ourselves under God when we eagerly, eagerly submit to the reading and preaching of His Word. A, a proud person is going to struggle to hear and heed the Word of God. They, they might be hearers of it, but not doers. If they do read the Scriptures or sit under the Word preached at all, they typically apply all the promises to themselves and all the rebukes and corrections to that other guy. And they approach the Word just as you would expect that Pharisee in the parable to approach it. But a humble person like that tax collector would listen eagerly and with delight. They tremble at the threatenings and they rejoice at the promises. And so consider yourselves. Does your approach to God's Word reveal pride or humility? Probably a mix of both, Right? Again, we humble ourselves under God when we submit to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. A proud person like Naaman, uh, who scoffed at the prophet's command to go wash in the Jordan, uh, might say that such things are too simple, too uh, foolish. They might look for other ways to grow in grace and holiness, other ways to be fed and strengthened, ways that exalt man and man's ingenuity. But a humble believer comes to the sacrament and sees in them the power and wisdom of God. They diligently use these ordinary means of grace by faith, expecting God to do great things through them. And so again, consider yourselves. Does your approach to the Lord's Supper reveal pride or humility? And finally, we humble ourselves under God, especially when we cry out in prayer, casting all our anxieties on him. What is anxiety? Well, anxiety is the fruit of pride. It's the pride of taking matters into our own hands, the pride of thinking that we can control the future, the pride of self righteousness and self exaltation. On the other hand, hum- prayer is, is the fruit of humility. Habitual prayer comes from a disposition of neediness and dependence. In the parable, the Pharisee didn't pray. He boasted. He praised himself. But the tax collector, out of his need, out of his uh, humbleness, he cries out for help. To cast our anxieties and cares on God is not to cast them away. It's not the getting rid of those things which cause anxiety. It's the proper placement of them. If we are anxious about school doesn't mean we drop out of school. It doesn't mean we don't do our homework. But we cast those cares upon the Lord through prayer. If we're anxious about our children or our marriages, we, we, we don't get rid of those things. We don't pretend they don't exist. And we cast them upon the Lord in prayer. We take them to the one who cares and who has the power and wisdom to help. There are many cares that tempt us to anxiety, many things that can press us down with an unbearable weight so that we feel like we're suffocating. In our our pride, we like to think that we can manage at least the little ones, right? That, That only the really big ones are the things that should be taken to God in prayer. But do you see what Peter says here? He says we're to cast all our cares on God, the big and the small, the the daily and the one-of-a-kind, the rational and the irrational. Take them all to God in prayer. Andrew Bonar writes, No one concern of yours is too small for him. In creation, the smallest insect is cared for and gets mysterious life, as certainly as the loftiest angel. And in providence, God's saint's smallest interest is attended to. God God cares about your smallest of interest, your smallest concerns. This humble casting of our cares and concerns upon God is because, Peter says, he cares for us. Let that sink in. Don't pass too quickly over that. We remember that Peter's writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith that they're suffering greatly, they're facing many hardships and hurts. In the eyes of the world, they have every reason to be afraid and anxious. And it would be very easy in such a moment to throw your hands up and just to say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. Just as the proud sinner who's walking in secret sin likes to say, God does not see what I'm doing. God doesn't care what I'm doing. So too, a suffering saint is tempted by that same proud spirit of disobedience and rebellion to say, God doesn't see me in my suffering. God doesn't care about me right now. And friends, that's a complete lie. Because we're told here, plain as day, God cares for you. You might ask, well, how do I know that? How do I know that God cares for me? What has God done to show us his fatherly care and concern? When the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm suddenly came upon them so that the waves were breaking into the boat and filling it with water, remember they cried out to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? The storm made them afraid. It made them anxious. And in that anxiety and fear, they're questioning and doubting the care of Jesus, the Son of God. How do we know that God cares for His people? We know because Jesus got into that boat with His people. He entered into the storm for us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. How do we know that God cares for His people? We know because Jesus, the chief shepherd, lays down His life for His sheep, an atonement for sin. How do we know that God cares for His people? We know because God has promised that He will not leave us in our sufferings. But just as He raised Jesus from the dead, so too at the proper time He will exalt us. He cares for you as a father for His child He cares for you as the sheep of His pasture. Jesus loves to hear His sheep bleat and bah. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yes, He loves to hear about our cares and concerns, both big and small. He loves to give grace, especially in time of need, when we're humbled and needy, and repentant. And prayer is the speech of the humbled man, woman, or child. And we need to learn this language. Lord's prayer is a good place to start. It's a humble prayer. Just consider that petition we we prayed earlier for our daily bread. And by that petition, we're acknowledging that because we're sinners, we don't Deserve our daily bread. We've forfeited our right to such blessings. We're not worthy of our daily necessities. But we beg God for it out of a sense of neediness, out of a sense of humility. And as a gracious, loving Heavenly Father, He's pleased to give it. And so consider your language toward God. Is your language one of humility? Or do you speak with the self-righteous pride of the Pharisee? The humble believer is one who's praying often. They're casting all their anxieties on Him because He cares for them. The Christian prays because the Christian is humble. The Christian prays because they're not as humble as they ought to be. We pray, Lord, strip me of my pride. Clothe me with humility. And friends, God loves to answer this prayer. He loves to give grace to the humble. Let's look one final time at that quotation in verse 5. And let let this ring in your ears. Let this bring you to your knees. Clothe yourselves, all of you, Peter writes, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Let's stand as we uh, pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in our weakness and neediness. We come to you as the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we know that you care for us because we have heard and we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have heard that Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know that we were perishing in our sins, that we were captive to the law and to death. And Lord, You saved us. We were rebels and You humbled us by Your grace. Lord, we pray that You would continue to strip us of all pride, of all self-righteousness. That You would make us a humble people, a a Christ-like people. For we know You oppose the proud, but You exalt the humble. And so Lord, humble us that we might be exalted at the proper time. Even as You exalted Christ, raising Him from the dead, on the third day. May your Holy Spirit bless the ordinary means of grace unto this end, that we might learn humility, and that we might even learn humility through what we suffer. Deliver us, O God, from all anxieties and fears, and from that pride of thinking that we can handle it. Instead, give us to cast all our cares on You, our God and Father, knowing that You care for us. And Lord, if there be any here that remain in the pride of unbelief, we pray that You would tame their hearts. Make them humble and submissive so that they might not perish in their pride, but rather be exalted in their humility. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, "Amen." Amen. Respond to the word with Psalm 138 letter A
3: 138 letter A Ta 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 With all my heart my thanks I'll bring before the God your praise I'll sing. I'll bow down toward your holy place and praise. up and with faith
2: receive the blessing of our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.